everyone, this is Bethan. Um, I'm at the Mind State Society event today in the at the Royal Society of Medicine in London. Um, and we've just sit, finished the morning session today. And I am really excited because I am about to interview Dr. Louise Hyde from Birkbeck University of London. I got that right, didn't I? And she gave a fantastic presentation earlier on asylum, social exclusion and scandals. So we're going to talk a little bit about you first. Do you want to tell us a bit about your perspective? what perspective you come from because you're a historian aren't you you're not a clinician or an academic uh, clinical researcher that's right yes so I'm an academic historian and I'm a social and cultural historian and my area really is on psychiatric institutions so my earlier work was very much on 19th century asylums um, and I'm now working on 20th century uh, institutions. I'm in interested in the deinstitutionalization process, um, but more specifically, I'm looking at the, some of the very big and very important uh, inquiries into abuse in psychiatric hospitals that were held in the early 1970s. I'm interested in what those inquiries and what the documentation underlying those inquiries can tell us about um, institutional cultures, cultures of harm, and how those cultures evolve in institutional settings over a long period of time and where they are often not seen or they become part of the institution to a degree in which they're sort of almost invisible, but they are also very harmful. Thank you. I think that's a really good introduction. And you, you talked an awful lot about that in your presentation, didn't you? And that's something that um, really struck with me, how the culture and attitudes can build over time to a point where maybe 10, 20, 30 years, you're unable to see where motives or reasons for practices came from do you get yeah maybe I haven't explained that yeah, very well yes yeah that's exactly it and I think just going back as a historian going back to the early 19th century when we start to see what we would now think of as small public institutions that were built for people uh, who were experiencing uh, mental distress that those, the driving force, the impetus for that was, was very humanitarian. You know, the um, intentions were very good. It was to help, to help people who were otherwise very much at the sort of mercy of uh, what might, might have been a very hostile environment that they were living in. So what I'm saying is, that, and then gradually those institutions that were small to begin with, over time got bigger and bigger and bigger as more and more people were sent to these institutions. So what I'm saying is that there are uh, lessons to be learned, there are things that resonate uh, with us today I think in terms of uh, some of the smaller care homes that are now, we're looking at larger purpose-built care homes. 
I'll come back to yeah, that in okay. a bit because we had a question from Twitter yeah. whilst um, we had questions mm-hmm. from the audience. Do you want to give a, a brief overview of what your presentation was about? You've covered some of it, haven't yeah. you? But to yeah. give a bit more about what you talked yeah. about. Um, so what I'm really looking at is, as a starting point, the, uh, the looking at some of the inquiries from the early 70s and to look at where the large mental hospitals, as they were called, where they had got to at that point in terms of providing very, very, very poor standards of care and neglect and abuse, uh, particularly for older people, people who were often very isolated. They may well have spent many years in the institution themselves, and many of them didn't have family members to advocate for them either. And the ways in which ideas around, very ageist ideas around old people, that um, uh, people living with dementia, that this was an inevitable part of getting old, that nothing could be done, that these were so-called hopeless cases, and that people were really left to languish on the wards Uh, in in very inhumane conditions, basically. And what I'm saying is that the inquiries can show us uh, where we got to, how we got to that that particular point. Um, So it's, it's, the other point that I was making is around isolation. So part of it is around isolation of the institution, institutions outside communities, but also the isolation that's experienced by patients who are inside the wards and also by the staff who become very socially and professionally isolated as well. So there's this concept of isolation, I think, is really, really important. Definitely. Mm. Um, you talked. You talked about, and and you told us about heartbreaking things about people not moving from beds, yeah, um, and being left there um, with no occupation. Yeah. Um, how did we get to that point? So you've mentioned isolation. Mm. Um, was there was finance involved in it any anywhere? Were these institutions not? funded well or was it more to do with attitudes? Uh, both but okay. finance funding is always always yeah. always going to be a big issue so it was in the 19th century as much as in the 20th. Uh, by putting people in bed by keeping people in bed is much, makes it much easier to manage people basically mm-hmm. so they don't move around they are sort of subjected to the sort of disciplines and routines of the ward. Um, so that's a, but obviously their quality of life is close to zero yeah. um, because they're not actually occupied. So one of the things that actually happened in the 1960s uh, was that people started to, and this didn't happen in every hospital, of course, but this, there were specific hospitals where this did happen, where a lot of older people were simply put to bed because they were seen as being old and as having, uh, because they were old, having particular mental and physical um, conditions, and so they were put to bed. It's just deeply distressing, Mm. isn't it? 
Um, I seem to remember, I think it was from your presentation, about the economic argument mm. for keeping people in bed and in locked wards mm. and the two-tier system you were talking about. So people who they thought might get better and could be reintroduced into the community, um, they were on different wards, were mm, they? That's right, yeah. So, so basically people tended to... In, in the old asylums, and this is not in every institution, of course, because there were many institutions and wards where people did receive the best possible care that they could that could be provided um, and so these inquiries tend to relate to a few wards and a few hospitals okay. so 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 that 's not to say that uh, so really what was happening uh, but after the Second World War, there was a huge um, uh, dearth of funding. There, there was a, a, a real move to try and close all these big institutions because they were so dilapidated and they didn't want to spend any money on them. So the conditions were very poor and they wanted to move people into the community where people would have a better standard of life. And part of that in the 1950s that sort of um, advance that idea was when the new um, uh, drugs were introduced that could help people to control some of their symptoms, which meant that they didn't need institutional care any longer and they could live in the community uh, if they took their drugs. So that was another. Yeah. And, that, and that brings to me something that um, clicked in my mind when you said people lying in bed and they weren't a, yeah. a management problem necessarily yeah. mm-hmm. um, for the staff. Um, it, it, a lot of service users say that medication can do it very mm. much the same mm. um, can make you very drowsy and mean that you um, don't cause any trouble for staff mm. or people but you're doing that at home in the community mm-hmm. um, do you see any parallels between that or um, well I think there are lots of ways I mean <laughs> there are lots of ways of controlling yeah. people's behaviours um, and I, in that post-war period, uh, they, these places were very, very badly staffed, poorly staffed. So not only were there not, very, not many staff, they were yeah. very short staffed, um, but the, many of the staff who were there were very poorly trained as well. Okay. So they didn't have the sort of training that obviously that you would have now. But, but so they, they were trained in in a very different way. So psychiatric nurses were sort of trained to, um, yes, they were trained to care for patients, of course they were, but they were also trained to uh, make sure that the wards looked neat and tidy and clean. And so there was, so in some ways, particularly on the wards where you have a lot of long stay patients who are not expected to get better. Some of the nurses uh, become more, uh, for their own sort of job satisfaction, uh, interested in making sure that the ward looks good. So, yeah. So I'm going to move a bit to today now. Mm-hmm. What can we learn and how, how can we learn from um, the closure of the uh, asylums and community care? Well, I think, I think one of the, the, the things that we can learn is to look at how, because since the closure of the big hospitals, or most of them, um, in the 1980s and 90s, we've now seen 
the entire sort of history of the asylum system, basically, from when it started in the late 18th, early 19th century, right through for sort of 150 or so years to the 1980s and 90s. And so we can see all the events, all of the different ideologies that created them, all the different sort of discourses, and all of the huge events also that had a, a very, very big impact. And I think perhaps one of the main reasons for why the asylums became what they became in the 1950s and 60s were the two wars, because, okay. because that was the time when people were moved out uh, sorry, people were moved out from their institutions and put into other institutions uh, to make way for the military. And also all the nurses and doctors, many of the nurses and doctors went to war. Okay. And so they were very, very badly, poorly staffed. There was terrible disease, starvation during both of the wars. And so by the end of the Second World War, so advances were made from... Uh, from the sort of um, 1930s in particular, and then again, everything got shut down again as soon as the war came along. So after the war, uh, you end up with a situation where a lot of these institutions were in a very, very bad state mm. indeed. And then some uh, new, lots of new ideas started to be introduced from the late 1940s and 50s. And this, is, this was the sort of beginning of the whole therapeutic, deinstitutionalization process. Right. Now, I'm going to ask, just before we finish, I'm going to ask you a question from Mr. Kia Harding, because if I don't ask you a question, he will annoy me forevermore on Twitter. <laughs> so, Kia asks a question. Have the asylums gone away or have we privatised them, made them smaller, made receptions look like hotels and carried on making the people who did, who experienced distress live in warehouses in the countryside. <laughs> <laughs> That's typical Kia. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't think there's a sort of straightforward answer to that. So I think... Um... <sighs> Have they gone away or are we seeing their re-emergence? No. I think that... Um... There are resonances from history, so we're never going to see the same asylums again as they were. But there will be different forms of institutional care, and I think what we can do is to learn from the asylums, which is they were isolated okay. and they were too big. And uh, they uh, allowed certain you know, uh, environments, very harmful environments and practices to take place without much being done about it until the 1950s. So I think that what will happen is, no, we won't see the old asylum system, but we can learn lessons from what did happen from, with the asylums to make sure that the new uh, emerging uh, ways in which um, care is provided, particularly long-term care, uh, that, that we don't make the same mistakes, so that they are not built in isolated mm. um, uh, locations, that they do not get too big, 
um, and that they are regularly monitored and that you have uh, constantly new people coming in who can see things that people who've been there for a long time don't see. Because that's a, a form of isolation, isn't it? Yeah, the staff right. being the, either you've got the geographical isolation, yeah, I'm yeah. presuming, but also the isolation mm. of turnover of staff, people being there a exactly, long time. Exactly, and they people become professionally isolated yeah. and socially isolated as well. So it's, it's a very, very big issue, yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me. I could talk to you for an hour. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you.